Kotsk Podcast. I'm Jordan Wozniak. And I'm Gavin Michael. This is episode 10, Angels in Rabbinic Literature, and Can We Pray to Them? Good morning, Gavin. How are you? Very well. And you, Jordan? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. We're in the mi- middle of winter here, and you're in the middle of summer. So it's a, a fantastic contrast, and I, I'm an envy of your warm weather. Well, I'm in envy of your cold weather, just to keep things uh, balanced. <laughs> you may not want to look out my window right now. <laughs> Actually, it's not too bad. Most of the snow melted, and uh, it's uh, it's just getting around on the streets sometimes a little bit challenging at times. But we're we're all doing okay. Okay. Well, but today we have an interesting uh, we have an interesting topic that's uh, um, might warm things up a little bit more, which is the topic of angels in rabbinic literature and how they were treated by. Uh, how the topic of angels is treated by Tanakh, by the early rabbinic literature, by the Talmud, by the commentators, the medieval philosophers, and how it manifests today, and the whole topic of praying to angels. And I think this is uh, one of these topics where uh, it, there's, it illustrates uh, the perhaps divide between a rationalist approach and a mystical approach, possibly better than anything else one could imagine. Yeah, I think it's a perfect example of that um, differential that exists between those two streams of thought. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So maybe we can start at the you know very beginning, as it were, with the topic of angels in the Tanakh. Because as you mentioned in your blog post on this topic, I think everybody is familiar with, there's so many key stories where angels make an appearance that it's kind of hard to imagine a Judaism without angels just based on that. So maybe we can go through where they come up in Tanakh. Right. So I, I, I've been having a long-standing debate with my wife, who I, I love very, very dearly, and we never, ever differ on, on anything except when it comes to Tanakh and the angels. She, she teaches, and she teaches Chumash to um, children, and uh, she just cannot understand how certain people, such as the Rambam, certain rabbis, such as the Rambam, do not believe in Angels, whereas she says clearly, you open up a chumash, especially in the beginning of um, Bracious, um, angels here, angels there, angels everywhere. Like a mm-hmm. recurring theme right throughout the um, chumash. But I think you know, our, our approach should be not to take any sides right now. Let's just look at what various people say. Let's just throw out almost like a montage and just get an overview without necessarily siding. So if you hear something that you like or that you don't like, just put it in a storage box. Let's not form an opinion because we're not, really, we're not going to get, really get any clarification when it comes to whether or not they are or are not angels. All we can do is we can assess and understand what the various rabbis said and what the various books said. So if you start with the Chumash, as you, as you mentioned, according to the Chumash, angels do exist. They're referenced throughout the Chumash. As mm-hmm. we move on to the Nach, which is the um, section that deals with the books of the prophets and the Ketuvim and the writings, there are very few references to angels. So that's really interesting. The, the Chumash is replete with references to the angels. The Nach doesn't have so many references to angels, except one great exception is the book of Daniel, um, where Daniel references angels. He refers specifically to the the angels of Gabriel and Michael, and he also ranks the angels into into hierarchies, um, and 
this notion um, is supported by what the Talmud Yerushalmi was later to say, that the idea of angels came from Bavel, because we know that Daniel was exiled at Babylon in, in, in Bavel, and there is this idea that we learnt about angels, specifically the hierarchy from Bavel. Um, obviously, we already had a strong tradition of angels, because as we mentioned throughout the Chumash, we read all about angels, and to some extent in the prophets, but we seem to have developed it very, very strongly in Bavel, in the exile in um, Babylon. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the, a, a little bit more now in uh, looking at the Talmudic period. Uh, we start with the Mishnah period, which is from the year zero to 200 more or less. Again, in the Mishnah, a very, very few references to angels. Um, according to some, some views, there are no references to angels. According to others, there's one reference to angels, quite a well-known reference. Many people would know it. It's in Mishnah Avot. Mm -hmm. And in Avot, we read, if you do a mitzvah, you get a praklit, an advocate. Mm -hmm. If you do an avera, you get a kategor, which is an accuser. Right. Now you could understand that, you know, it, it's to your benefit to do a mitzvah, it's to your disadvantage to do an Avera. Or you could understand the praklit, your advocate that you acquire, being an angel, and the kategor being a negative angel and accuser. But if there are any references to angels in the Mishnah, that would be the reference. Otherwise, essentially, the Mishnah does not reference angels, which is fascinatingly interesting, um, because one would have thought that it would have just picked up from um, Daniel and from the uh, previous literatures and, and, and spoken about angels, but it does appear as if there's some kind of a break in that transmission of the notion of, 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 of angels, and that's the period of the Mishnah. Also very interesting is that other literature from the Mishnaic period, not from the, from the Mishnah itself, but from the same time period, 0 to mm -hmm. 200, um, other literature does reference Malachim. Mm. So, you know, one has to understand that. I don't really know what that means, but that's, that's what it is. I have heard that a possible explanation as to why the Mishnah does not officially reference angels is to serve as a kind of counter to Christianity, which was just beginning to emerge, which obviously had quite a strong tradition of those concepts, and one one needed to distance oneself from 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 those um, views. But be that as it may, that's the period of the Mishnah. Moving on to the period now, Jordan, of the Gemara, the, that would have been from roughly two hundred to five hundred CE, mm -hmm. particularly in the in the Bavli, frequent references to angels, many many, many examples. Gomorrah speaks about angels being created every day. They fall into a river, the river of, of, of dinner, the river of fire, and they get consumed, and only two permanent angels remain. But once again, lots and lots of different references to angels. So if you studied Chumash and if you studied Talmud Bavli, your world would be filled with angels and certainly with references to, to angels. 
On the other hand, the Bavli's sister literature, the Talmud Yerushalmi, doesn't contain so many references to angels. And it makes the point that we do not pray to angels. We do not need any form of intercession. Mm-hmm. And this reference in the Rishalmi is in stark contrast to the Bavli, where the Bavli actually mentions that one of the primary functions of these angels are, in fact, to carry our, our prayers. So there is this sort of tension that exists between the Bavli and the Yerushalmi. But yes, the Yerushalmi does reference angels as, as well. So one thing I wanted to ask on this topic, because whenever I think that, uh, you know, in terms of the, the, the everyday Jews, m- most frequent contact with the idea of angels, not necessarily praying to them, uh, but maybe more like praying like them, right, which is in the Kedusha, right, that, that we say in the repetition of the Amida. So this is a very frequent thing that one encounters, right? And we say, you know, there's references to, to uh, Seraphim, right? And uh, in other PU team that we say regularly, there's like references to angels. And so we're going to get in very into the discussion very shortly about how others, you know, how the Rambam, how the Ramban, um, you know, conceptualized of angels. But clearly by the time that uh, this section of the tefillah was, you know, canonized and instituted. It was, it would be, uh, you know, considered, I guess, perfectly acceptable to have this um, kind of mental vision of that there, there are angels, and there are these heavenly creatures of some kind who pray in a certain way, and we're going to emulate them, right? right? We're going to, we're going to do, we're going to attempt to do what they do, and it's all based on this uh, prophetic vision in Isaiah, and that must have been, I mean, that was powerful enough. It's like you say, it's everywhere, and especially in those texts, which are somewhat mystical in their nature, uh, very present and enough to kind of really cement it in our liturgy. Right. So, uh, what you're saying is absolutely correct. Um, as we see, we just open up a uh, Siddur, and it's certainly become part of the mainstream. And it, it, as I say, uh, there appears to be no no debate. Judaism believes in angels, and Judaism believes that we should emulate angels, and, and Judaism believes that we should uh, sometimes even ask for their help, perhaps sometimes even their intercession. Until, mm. until right. we come to the father of Jewish rationalism, the Rambam. Mm-hmm. Um, Rambam is born in 1135, and he dies in... 1204. So that was already quite late. Yes. Uh, Judaism had quite a long time to develop before the Rambam, but it appears as if the the Rambam was the first dominant voice that challenged the notion that you just spoke about, that angels are part of the system. It's mainstream. No one even questions them. Mm -hmm. So the Rambam did not believe that angels existed. They did not exist, according to the Rambam, other than in the mind and the thought of the person who believed that they were seeing them or experiencing them. But they were not actual beings. They could never manifest in reality. You could never see them with physical eyes. Again, this is the view of the Rambam. Of course, he raises a whole lot of questions. What about the stories in the Chumash? Yes, yes, yes. But nonetheless, this is what he says. 
He says that the only way a human being can perceive of an angel or experience an angel is if the person goes into a trance or a dreamlike state. But within physical reality, you cannot see or experience an angel. The Rambam writes about this a lot in his Mori Nevuchim. He says categorically, no meeting with an angel ever took place in physical reality. Uh, he puts his cards on the table, nails his mm-hmm. colors to the mast very, very clearly. It never happened. What about the references in Chumash? Well, the Rambam, he has a problem because it's very difficult to explain away something that's written in the Chumash. I mean, it's like trying to argue with my wife on the notion of uh, angels. Um, mm-hmm. But he says, the, the Rambam says that as a general rule, that's why I say it's not a good answer because he gives a general answer, but there, there are exceptions. He says as a general rule, every time the Torah speaks about, or rather often when the Torah speaks about an angel, the story was preceded by either the words Vayisa, Eina, Vayar, that the person lifted up his eyes and he saw, or mm-hmm. Hashem had already appeared to the individual beforehand, and then this was part of the um, 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 spiritual experience that kind of manifested in an appearance of, of an angel of sorts. Um, but it would have been a residue from a more godly experience, but still mm-hmm. not a perception of a being with physical eyes. And the Rambam goes on to explain that angels do exist, but only in the sense of being sechalim nivdalim, which means separate intelligences. And what does he mean by that? He's referring by that to the energy in a plant to grow, the notion of gravity. You drop something to the ground, it falls down. There's an energy that, that pulls it down. It appears to have some kind of a seichel, some kind of intellect, because it doesn't go up, it goes down. It's governed mm-hmm. by rules, um, laws, a seichel. And mm-hmm. these are what the Rambam says would be angelic forces, but they are not necessarily these um, ethereal beings that manifest to us. They are energies, they are natural forces. Um, there's nothing supernatural in the spiritual sense about these um, energies and these uh, separate intelligences. And the Rambam believed so strongly in this idea that angels do not manifest in reality. And he believed it was so bad for a monotheistic religion to claim belief in something like angels that he wrote. And uh, I'll quote to you from, from, from his text. He says, um, how bad and injurious is the blindness of, of ignorance. So he's almost insulting when he speaks about people who are so blind and so ignorant that they believe that angels actually do exist. And he wanted to take mm-hmm. all references that, as you said, by now were well entrenched within Jewish liturgy and in the Sidur and in the Jewish psyche. He wanted to take certainly the references from the Sidurim, references to angels, and he wanted to remove them from the uh, Sidur 
One right. great example is the prayer, Ambrich Shmei, which mm-hmm. Jordan, you would know, is a prayer that we say when we take out the um, Torah, just before we take out the Torah. Um, there's a, a sentence in that prayer, Vela Albar Elahin Samichna, where we say, I will not rely on the sons of God. Right. In other words, angels. I will not rely on angels. So you might say, well, that's a good prayer. We're not relying on angels. But the Rambam wanted even that sentence removed because he said, even if you don't rely on angels or you say you're not going to rely on angels, it implies that you still believe in angels, just not you're not relying on them. So he wanted that removed. I must just add in parenthesis that I found this very interesting because Brich Shmei is an extract which we've taken from the Zohar. From the Zohar, yes. It's yeah. The, it's the prime example of the Zohar in, a, in our liturgy today, right? Right. But there's a problem because the Rambam died in 1204 and the Zohar was first published in 1290. So it raises all sorts of interesting questions. How could the Rambam have referred to it? If uh, you know, were there different texts that exists uh, that that existed? Hmm. And it opens up the whole whole issue of the origins of the Zohar. But be that as it may, um, the Rambam wanted wanted that prayer removed. It's a, he's in a tricky situation, the Rambam, because uh, he his approach, you know, as you say, it contradicts the plain meaning of the text of Humash in multiple places over and over again. Yes. And so, uh, you know, the more you want to contradict that plain meaning, the more effort you have to make to, right. you know, to And he's in a away. very tricky position because he's um, arguing with the Zohar before it was published, which is a very yes. tr- oh, tricky that- position. To be in, we're gonna have we're gonna have to do an episode on the on. We we'll leave that one for another time. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But let's 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 come now to the Ramban, right? And this this is a, a I think also a good example of a the, a Ramban Rambam conflict, which is a kind of an encapsulation of the mystic rationalist conflict. Yes, about, just and, and just to clarify just the angels. yeah the 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 Rambam of course is Maimonides and the Ramban mm-hmm. is Nachmanides. The Ramban was 59 years younger than the Rambam, and they would have overlapped for a period of about, in fact, for a period of exactly 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ramban is known as the father or a father of Jewish mysticism. Rambam is the father of Jewish rationalism. Yes. And of course, they came into conflict again and again and again on so many different issues, but they certainly... Um, locked horns when it came to this idea of of angels. The Ramban believed that angels could take on various forms. They could take on a human form even. They could take on some other physical form as well. The Ramban clearly believed in angels. He gave a wonderful example with the story of Azazel, mm-hmm. which the Ramban equates to Samael, who's the angel of Asav. Right. And in a very mystical fashion, the Ramban writes that what we did by throwing down the goat was we were bribing the angel of Esau so that that angel would not 
speak badly about the Jews on Yom Kippur. So, mm. you know, you say the Rambam was in a tricky position. The Ramban is also in an interesting position because now we have angels and we can bribe them. It's very theurgic. We can manipulate them. But again, that's the view of the um, Ramban. And the Ramban goes on to say that this is the view of of the sages. It's it's a well-established view. The point that you made earlier on, Jordan, it, it's part of mainstream Judaism. This is the view. This is the, the view of the Talmud. Yes, you can't argue with that. It is the view of the Talmud. It's a very strong view. In the, it's a very dominant view in the Talmud, especially the Talmud Bafli. Um, and the Ramban said that, sort of speaking about the technicalities and the mechanics of angels appearing to man, the Ramban says that the angel would don a malbush, some kind of a garment of sorts, mm -hmm. which would make the um, spiritual um, ether of the angel visible and apparent to a, a human being, making him more visible, so, so to speak. But the Ramban didn't leave it there. He fiercely, fiercely attacked the Rambam. He right. says, the Rambam, according to, to the Rambam, Sarah wouldn't have baked a challah um, or matzah. Um, she wouldn't have laughed. Avram wouldn't have slaughtered the calf in the story in Breishis. Right. When they're visited by the angels to announce. They're visited that, by the very that angels that don't exist. Born. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And, 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 yeah. and then all those details, you know, it's one thing saying angels came, but then the Torah goes on to record details. You know, what did they say? What did they, yeah, goes a, a, a whole lot of details. Why all those details if, if, if it's not true? Yaakov then wrestles with, with an angel and afterwards he limped. That was something very, very real. He limped apparently for the rest of his life. He limped um, because of his uh, fight with the angels and his name became Israel. And all these things, uh, what does the Rambam do with this? Asks the Ramban. And again, he had a very strong basis to say all of these things because this was such a mainstream of view. Uh, um, and in the end, the Ramban says, he seems to have had enough of, of, of the Rambam's audacity to say that angels don't exist. He says, the Rambam's views contradict those of the Torah. It's asur, it's forbidden to listen to them, never mind believing in them. So here you have the great Ramban, Nachmanides, telling us it's forbidden to listen to the Rambam when he's speaking about angels. It's forbidden. Don't believe what the Rambam says. Don't listen to them. Don't read them. It's heresy. It's wrong. Very strong words. Very, very strong <laughs> words from, uh, from, a, from a very, very important rabbi against a very, very important rabbi. So what we have over here is very much a core debate in Jewish theology. In fact, it's a core fight. It's not much of a debate in Jewish theology. Um, of course, the Rambam, we know, would defend his stance because he does this very, very often in the Torah. He says that the Torah sometimes speaks in allegories and not mm -hmm. everything that is written in the Torah is to be taken literally. And by the way, Jordan, that's not such an audacious comment. It's not such a strange idea because one could say the same thing about 
deriving halacha, things like milk and meat, which we derive from the repetition of certain um, psukim and various mm-hmm. things. It seems as if everybody used the Torah as as a means of 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 um, pushing their 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 particular discipline agenda, if you like. The only people who took the Torah literally were the Karaites. So, you know, I think yes. the Rambam would be well within his rights to say, well, you know, some things we interpret literally, some things we do allegorically, the same as everybody else does, except for the Karaites. Right. The Rambam had a friend, though, he, and he had a friend in Don Yitzchak Abravanel. Yes. Abravanel dies in 1508. Right, so a metaphorical friend who lived several centuries exactly. after him. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, a metaphorical friend, but a very good friend. Yes, um, and in his commentary on the Moran um, on the Rambam's Moran Nevuchim, Abravanel writes, he says, "Yes, Sarah didn't bake cake, she didn't laugh, Avram didn't prepare the calf, etc., etc." Almost responding to the Ramban's um, criticism of the Rambam. And he goes on to say that, you know, these were part, part of a vision and the Torah recorded it because sometimes part of a vision has got a certain chashivus and importance, therefore it was re- recorded in the Torah. Um, and Av- the Abravanel goes on to challenge Ramban now. And he challenges the Ramban's notion that angels are very real because he says if angels adopt this malbush that the Ramban talks about and they now become visible and you can now see them, you can now experience them, you can talk to them. He says if they manifest physically, as the Ramban says, well let's talk tachlis. Abravanel asks, where do these bodies come from? Mm-hmm. Where do you they know, go? Do later, they yeah, yeah. exactly do they come out of fresh air? Were they born somehow? I mean, did they just pop into the air? Um, if they were born, how were they born? Mm-hmm. Were these bodies created? If they were created, were they, did they grow? Were they created as adults? Were they created as children? What happens to these bodies after they have done their mission? Do they just disappear? Or if they, bod- if they have bodies of some sorts... What would happen to that malbush? Would that malbush have to be buried? I mean, these are all sorts of very, very fascinating questions. What do you do when you finish with the malach who has manifested? Does he pop out of the air again? So he's, he was challenging the Ramban to say that it's not such a simple thing to say, okay, we'll call it a malbush and then everything's, everything's solved. That notion of the Ramban itself creates a whole lot of secondary problems that need to be dealt with as well. And Abravanel then goes on to say, agreeing with the Rambam, that angels must therefore have appeared in visions, and they couldn't have been in um, physical forms. So there we have, have I think, a a very, very fundamental debate, as you pointed out, Jordan, and um, fascinating, fascinating to discover that on such such a notion that has become so part and parcel of, and I, I can guarantee you, stop a Jew in the street, ask him, from, not from, do Jews believe in angels? Of course Jews believe in angels. And yet, mm-hmm. there's this very, very deep 
essential ripping debate between Rambam and Ramban. Right. And then the the topic we need to address next is, so whether or not, <laughs> presumably, you know, you believe that angels, ex- you know, do angels exist if the answer is yes, or even if the answer is no, and you're just kind yeah. of, you're going to stick to no- normative, uh, normative Jewish liturgy, are we, like, do we pray to angels? What is the role of praying to angels? And what do we do with uh, with a hymn like Shalom Aleichem that we sing on Friday night, right? Yeah. You have it at the, at the top of the page, you know, <laughs> Shalom Aleichem Malachi Asharit, right? What are you going to do with that? And how do you approach that? And, uh, you know, I think this is, you know, if I can say, this is one of these things a lot of people will sing it without thinking perhaps too much about what is the, what are the theological implications of exactly what I'm saying. Um, so, I'm going to say it because it's, because it's what we do, right? It reminds me of, of, of a lovely story. Um, I used to sing Shalom Aleichem, which is my, my favorite song, and I love singing it, especially with Shabbos guests, because the Shabbos guests loved it, those who were from loved it, those who weren't from loved it. People cried when we sang it. And then when I saw that the view of the Rambam was that we do not pray to angels, we don't even believe in angels, I stopped singing it at my house, and one day we had visitors, and they were waiting for Shalom Aleichem, and they got so, so, so upset that they questioned <laughs> my very uh, um, thought process. Uh, what kind of a rabbi are you if you do not sing Shalom Aleichem? You know, don't you believe in – what's your next step? You don't believe in God. If you don't believe in angels, do you believe in God? You know, But this just shows how how, how, how entrenched this notion is with, within Jewish thought. And that person wasn't even from. But be that as it may. Okay. Yeah. So, um, of course, Rambam says that our prayers are exclusively directed and addressed to God. We're a monotheistic mm-hmm. religion. There's no intercession. Um, and the Rambam wanted to remove all of these references from, from the Siddur. Um, in Shalom Aleichem, if you actually read the words, we do ask the angels to do certain things for us. Um, right. Barcelona we're not just referencing angels. Yeah. yeah, we are asking them to do acts for us. Yes. Um, Yaakov Emden, for example, he removed the prayer, Shalom Aleichem, from, from his uh, liturgy. Well, it's very, very interesting in his Sidurim that were later published. They published it. I don't know whether it was by mistake or on purpose, but they published Shalom Aleichem. Um in, in his various um, um, publications of, of his uh, Siddur, but he, he, he wanted it omitted from the liturgy, um, as, as did a, a lot of other, other people. The next prayer that created a huge amount of, COVID, of, of controversy is the Machnisa Rachamim, which, Jordan, mm-hmm. you would know is at the end of Slichus, it's towards the end of the Slichot prayers that we say between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and on other occasions. Yeah, very poetic, yes. Right, right. And they take quite a long time, all those different piyutim. Machnisa Rachamim basically means that we ask the angels to bring all of our prayers that we've just prayed, because now they're in a state of limbo, they're not going to go anywhere, so we ask the angels who are Machnise Rachamim, their job is to bring all of these prayers to God. We ask them now, please do your job and carry our heartfelt prayers that we've just prayed, carry these prayers to um, God. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So what do we do with this? So some people want to say, um, we're not really um, praying to angels. We're just sort of asking them to do what they're supposed to do. Um, right. And for that reason, it's at, at the end of the Slichot service, not at the main part of the Slichot, because remember we mentioned that Machnisei Rachamim is towards the end, so it's not part of the essential prayers. In other words, that's not really a prayer. It's just something that we're doing at the end to remind the angels that they must do their, their job. But that, that's already an admission of, 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 of some kind of acknowledgement that a problem does exist. Yes, yeah. But you can stand on your head. If you read the prayers, you're asking, you've, you're praying to to the angels. You're uh, asking them to to do things. To certainly to carry our prayers to to God, if not actively praying to to the angels. Ashkenazim include the Machnis Rachamim in the liturgy, but the Sephardim do not. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very interesting because one would have imagined the Sephardim who usually adopt the mystical approach would have would have been quite comfortable with that, but for some reason, no, it's not included. Machnis hmm. Rachamim apparently was introduced around about the 900s, which is the period of the Goenim. The period of the Goenim was from 589 to 1038, just before Rashi was born. But the prayer came out in about 900. Rav Shur Gaon apparently um, had no, no real issues with, with it, as did some of the other Goenim. They were quite quite happy with it. Um, and I think they kind of understood that it was meant to be a poem um, where one uses allegories. Not they weren't meant to be a prayer. Uh, that that is how it appears. Rav Shurigaon explained our acceptance of Machnis Rachamim. Um, in the 1700s, jumping a little bit uh, further ahead, there was a huge, huge debate in in Italy regarding the Machnis Rachamim, And in the Pachad Yitzchak, it's recorded, this this debate is recorded, and it kind of went to a hearing. Do we include it in our liturgy or do we not? Um, One of the adjudicating rabbis was the famous Rabbi Shumul Abuav, and together with his based in, he consulted with other rabbis, and they decreed that the prayer was a good prayer, it's a kosher prayer, it remains in the liturgy, and and it's fine. It's, it's not really a prayer to angels, or it's an okay prayer to angels. Right. After the psak was issued, there was such an outcry and a controversy within the Italian Jewish community that they had to repeat their verdict again because people could not understand how they could have allowed that prayer. So that was just how this incident was dealt with in the uh, 1700s in Italy. Mm-hmm. Also in the 1700s, if we move now to the, the Vilnagon, the Vilnagon seems to have taken a similar position to that of the Rambam. Certainly when it came to praying to, to angels, he says, we do not pray, pray to angels. Um, it's forbidden under Torah law. And um, anyway, he says, you can't even ask an angel to do something because an angel has no free will. So the whole right. exercise is a futile exercise. Besides being misguided, it's, it's a futile exercise because they can't do anything other than 
what it, whatever it was they were created for. So we know that Rabbi Chaim uh, Vilajan, who was the Vilna Gaon student, <clears throat> removed this prayer from their particular um, prayer books. Jumping back to the 1500s, the morale of Prague had a degree of difficulty with Machnisei Rachamim, so he changed the text a little bit. He turned it from Machnisei to Yachnisei. In other words, we're not asking them to carry our prayers. We are stating the fact, in inverted commas, that they carry the prayers. Um, And then he included that in his uh, liturgy. The Chsam Soifer, uh, he dies in 1839. The Chsam Soifer, he took a, a slightly different approach. He didn't like Machnisei Rachamim personally, but he didn't feel that he had the right to remove it from a prayer book. He didn't want to do that. Um, so what he did is when his community said the prayer, he was marich, he drew out the previous prayer, Nefila mm. Tapaim, so that he wouldn't have to say Machnisei Rachamim. So personally, he, he never said that prayer, and apparently Rabbi Akiva Eger adopted a similar position as, as, as well. Fascinatingly, um, within the Chabad tradition, the Tzemach Tzedek, who, who dies in 1866, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, he initially took a strong stand against Machnisei Rachamim um, and, and the notion of, of, of asking angels to, to intercede on on our, our behalf, and he, he suggested that we should rather ask the Avot, the patriarchs, to intercede on our, our behalf because that fits more into the Jewish notion of Zchut Avot. Praying to angels is something more foreign than Zchut Avot. But I believe there is a tradition within Chabad who say that um, later on the Timach Tzedek retracted this in his Derech Mitzvotecha, which is a book I used to study when I was in Yeshiva, but for me, this raises a number of issues as well because there's a tradition that he wrote that book when he was only 16. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure how he retracted something that he yeah. wrote. Perhaps, but be that as it may, that's, that's, that's the way I, I understand it. Let's just move quickly to contemporary times, looking at Reb Moshe Feinstein. Reb Moshe Feinstein was Nifta in 1986. So it's in recent times. Moshe Feinstein was the Poisikador. Yes. Um. People asked him, do we say Machnisa Rachamim? Do we not say it? He passed that we do. It's perfectly permissible to recite this prayer, Machnisa Rachamim. But he kind of encourages us to adopt an allegorical interpretation. <laughs> so we're not really right. praying to the angels. We, you know, it's a poem. It's a poem of, of yeah. sorts. Yeah? Meant to be inspirational, perhaps. Inspirational, right? perhaps at the end of Slichas. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. Um, another piece of very interesting contemporary um, literature that I, I just wanted to share with you quickly before we conclude, and that is um, some, interesting writes, some interesting writing from Rabbi Shlomo Brody. He is from Yeshivat HaKotel. Now, he, he writes, the song of Machni Sarachamim has become very, very popular, very, very nice tunes, a very, very um, sort of top of the Jewish hit parade. People were singing them mm-hmm. everywhere. And he writes that he knows of two rabbis who would never have recited Machnis Rachamim, who suddenly introduced it because it had a nice tune and everyone in the shul wanted to sing it. So the rabbi started singing 
a prayer that they normally <laughs> wouldn't have sung. <laughs> right? Right. So the, the theology takes a back seat. <laughs> popular theology went out the window. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Hmm. So Rabbi Brody writes, and I quote, should a, 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 a nigun, a song, change one's perspective on this matter? Should this change a person's theology? You know, a tune? Um, and Rabbi Brody goes on in, in a very daring fashion, and he, he challenges Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, actually. He takes it a matter further, uh, the, the matter a step further. He says, I understand this argument. I understand the argument. Um, but I cannot help feeling this is a horrific way to resolve a long-standing dispute relating to central issues of prayer, dogma, and our relationship with God. I would much rather leave things at a standstill reflecting a clash of values at stake rather than resolve this issue in such an ad hoc manner. So he, he, he was questioning how Rabbi Moshe Feinstein said, well, I know there's a controversy, but it's fine to say, you know, say it. He felt that the core debate, that raw core debate going back to the Rambam and the Ramban, raising all these fundamental issues within Jewish theology should be kept alive, should be made real, should be spoken about. People should be made aware of it rather than whitewashed and swept under the carpet as if Baruch Hashem, everything's okay. Nobody's arguing. We're, you know, Am Echad, Echad, and everything's super duper fine, mm -hmm. which is a wonderful thing to say, you know, if you want to keep people happy. But for real searches, that's not the kind of thing that they want to hear. They want these things opened up. They want these controversies revealed. And it's extremely important because people who ask these questions will not get answers to their questions if these questions are never, ever dealt with. And especially where we have such a wonderful precedent in people like the Rambam and the Ramban. So whatever you want to believe, you have a fantastic precedent. And therefore, yes. it's a good debate. It's a core debate, a very necessary debate, and something that we should not just pretend, uh, you know, didn't ever exist. And definitely so not something that we want to sweep under the rug, as it were, on the basis of the popularity of a niggun. Certainly not, yes, yes. Yeah. And demand from the congregants. Yes, right, right, absolutely. And right. so perhaps to finish up, we should talk about the prayer of Rabbi Ishmael, the Kohen Gadol, which also refers to angels. Right. And this is, according to some people, they recite this prayer every morning after, after Shachrit. It's a very, very Kabbalistic prayer. And essentially, you're asking the angels, actually talking to the angels. This is a translation from Ariel Bar, Bar Tzadok of, of the prayer of uh, Rabbi Shmuel Kon Gadol. He says that, may it be acceptable be before you. Yeah, here at Son, normally we say this may be acceptable before you referring to God, but in this instance we say ministering angels, that you do for me and my family a great mercy. I mean, clearly here, you're praying to the angels, you're talking to angels, you're asking them, you're asking them mm -hmm. to uh, do things. Yeah. Um, just by the way, in my Bristol of days, I'll, I'll never forget Chaim Kramer. Um, he's one of the uh, leading ideologues of the Bristol of movement. My teachers, a uh, man I very, very have very great respect for and a man I love very, very, very much. When I was full of enthusiasm to want to go to Rabbi Nachman's grave and to pray, he actually warned me, he says, don't go pray at the grave. Don't, 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 don't pray to Rabbi Nachman, which I thought was rather interesting. But I mean, Rabbi right. Nachman's not an angel, so I'm, I'm just mentioning that he just came to mind all of a sudden. But going back to the prayer of Rabbi Shmuel Kohen Gadol, he says, um, once again, I ask you ministering angels that you do for me, 
the great compassion, and that you take the keys, the supernal keys from God, with Hashem's permission, of course, and open for Mm -hmm. me the gates of grace and mercy and compassion. I mean, so that clearly, clearly, clearly is a form of angelic um, intercession. Yes. And uh, yeah, that's just another one of one of these prayers that would fit into this rubric of, you know, is say it, don't say it. It's a prayer to angels. It's a poem. Um, The choice is yours, but the debate, I think, is a very, very real debate and something that should be kept alive. Absolutely. And and to, to reiterate the point that you made earlier, people of either persuasion, right, that, you know, yes. we, that praying to angels is, you know, nominally, you know, praying to angels is only in quotes, it's quote unquote, praying to angels. And, uh, uh, and it's like, it's acceptable to do that or to recite it as part of a, you know, due to its poetic value, due to its inspirational value. Those people have have legitimate authorities on whom they can rely to back up that opinion. And people who believe that that type of thing should be removed from our tefillot also have legitimate authorities to back up their position. Right. Absolutely. We yes. Don't, yeah. We don't need to resolve it one way or the other. There's no need. There's, in fact, there's no need to resolve it. As you say, absolutely. There's no need to resolve it. It's not a problem. It, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful debate. It doesn't need to be resolved. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So now, I mean, t- uh, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, and so tomorrow evening, uh, <laughs> when we're singing Shalom Aleichem, <laughs> definitely going to be a different series of thought processes going. I'm going my head, to invite different say. guests. I'm not having the yes. same guests as last time. <laughs> I'm canceling the guests. <laughs> yeah, I don't, you know, debating what to tell my kids now. Anyway, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Right. This is a really great discussion, Gavin. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jordan. As, as always, thank you once again for your time and for being such a wonderful host. Um, all, the, all the best to you. Thanks again. Have a great day. Keep well. Mm-hmm.